BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Frog and Toad, Iggy Peck, Curious George, The Cat in the Hat, Max from Where the Wild Things Are, That Dang Pigeon from Mo Willems Books, children's book characters are among the most memorable in all of literature. And not only because you end up reading kids the same book 100 times. Done well, just a few lines of text and the right illustration can conjure an entire personality, a history, a way of being. Kids and adults connect with these characters, and they can make us feel seen or help us identify emotions we didn't know anyone else had. So today we'll talk about our favorite kids, bears, shapes, detectives, and more from children's literature, and what that menagerie helped us learn about ourselves. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a new animated series on Apple TV based on the Frog and Toad books by Arnold Lobel. Frog and Toad live a simple life, of course, enjoying the pleasures of friendship and the world around us. For me, Frog and Toad remind me to embrace the absurdity of waking up each day, of the profusion of life all around us, and of just being alive in the world. According to his daughter, creating the character's gentle friendship helped him explore and embrace his own sexuality as a gay man. Joining us to talk about children's book characters, creating them, understanding them, maybe just totally vibing with them, we've got a great panel. Michelle H. Martin is the Beverly Cleary Professor for Children and Youth Services at the University of Washington School of Information. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. We've also got Mac Barnett, author of the children's book Circle, Square, and Triangle, which have been made into a different animated series called Shape Island on Apple TV. He's also written many other awesome books, including our kids' favorites, Extra Yarn and The First Cat in Space Ate Pizza. Welcome to the show, Mac. Thanks for having me. A true fact I learned via Mac, uh, the first cat in space <laughs> did in fact eat pizza. <laughs> um, we're also joined by Two Doan, children's book buyer at East Bay Booksellers, a bookstore located in Oakland. Welcome to... Hello, good morning. 
So before we get going, this is a real Friday show, and we want all of you in this conversation. So we'd love to know from our listeners what characters from children's books have really resonated with you. Were they people, animals, fictional creatures? And what was it about those characters that spoke to you or made you feel seen? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. Um, Mac, let's start with you. I mean, what were some of the characters that resonated with you as a kid? Sure. I, I loved uh, Mickey from In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak. Oh. Uh, and he's just sort of a kid who's full of energy, falls out of bed, falls out of his clothes into a kitchen at night where he flies a plane around that's made of <laughs> dough, crows, just sort of like, just, just pure childhood energy that that cows adults and uh i think that's kind of a through line i loved calvin too from calvin oh, yeah. and Hobbes. i was obsessed with calvin uh and to sort of uh get a get a kid's book character who's also a tv character in grover in the oh, monster grover. at the end of this book by john stone but if i could get everybody from sesame street and all those characters <laughs> The Muppets, the humans, Grover, Cookie Monster, Maria, Gordon. Uh, though that I, I was, I was obsessed with them too. They were, uh, I think yeah. they were my closest friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, two. How about you? What were your favorite, or, or just a character, even if you want, um, a children's book character connected with you? There was a book that I don't know how I stumbled upon it when I was younger, but. It's a book called Stories Julian Tells by Anne Cameron, and mm. it's about these this this uh, family, a black family who lives kind of like in an urban area. And there was one story that really resonated with me that I think it was probably the first one. It's on a really hot summer day. I'm from Houston, so I mm -hmm. could really relate to that. And the two children are waiting outside of their father's mechanic shop where he's working. And all of a sudden, they're sitting there bored with their kind of their hands under their chins and looking at this heat, the mirage in the street and just bored out mm -hmm. of their minds. And all of a sudden, their dad comes out and asks them what they're doing. And they tell him that they're bored. And he kind of he has this big energy that's outrage like how can you be bored there's so many things in this world to do like you can just there he goes off into this soliloquy that from after reading that story just made me never feel bored ever again like, oh i thought you were just, gonna say the dad then hand him an iphone yeah no. <laughs> that, just, that's not what happened oh <laughs> there's just magic everywhere and ever since then i've loved reading yeah that's so good. Uh, Michelle Martin, look, we got to finish going around the horn here. What was a children's book character that connected with you? You know, I've got two oddities. Uh, one, and I have the books here in front of me, um, but there was one, a little book called Soda Pop. It was a Whitman mm. tiny tot tale, very small book uh, that could fit into my hand. And right now it is uh, shredded, but it's about a goat that um, kind of saves the day. He loves Soda Pop. And the uh, the guy who brings the soda pop cart around to all the families in this rural neighborhood, his cart breaks down and um, 
his motorcycle breaks down and the cart rolls down the hill. The, the goat stops it and then is able to save the day. So his payment for uh, being the thing that motive that uh, takes the cart around after that is soda pop every day. Now, whether a goat should be drinking soda pop, I don't know. But I just thought, wow, this is, you know, this is a great story. So I'm not sure that I really identified with the goat, but I just thought. You know what a creative. But you love idea. the goat, yeah, yeah. I yeah. do love the goat, yeah. <laughs> um, and the other one, my grandmother was a was an elementary uh, a, a kindergarten teacher, and my brother and I got all of her uh, disintegrated books that her kindergartners finished with, and one of them was "Are You My Mother?" about a little oh. uh, bird um, oh, who yeah. asks all these different animals, "Are you my mother?" You know, a dog, and what, uh, and so just that search for who are my people. I think mm. I also identified with. Mm. Right? Oh, I love that book. You know, it's funny because my family often makes fun of me as never having like had a childhood. Like I had older sisters. We moved. The, you know, I know Mac had a kind of childhood where the picture books stayed around for all this time. I think by the time I came around, there were no picture books left. You know, they're like, oh, how about you read Dune? You're seven. You know, <laughs> just like that was the kind of house I grew up in. Um, so I've gotten to experience all of these children's book characters, mostly as a parent. And as a parent, I would say the character that I most have loved is Francis. Um, I guess she's uh, a badger or something. I just think Francis is just the most alive character from that time, and she's so funny, and she sings all these songs. And you rarely, I feel like, see a kid, uh, like just the way that that children's energy where they can just be so off the wall and hilarious, reflected so beautifully. But I also have to shout out one of um, Max's characters. A tiny, is a tiny, tiny character. He's, there's a guy in the book, Extra Yarn. Uh, Mac, I'm sure you remember this guy. Uh, he never wears pants, yeah. even in winter. <laughs> and he only has one line. He just says, none for me, thanks, you know, um, or, or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, Mr. I, Crabtree. Mr. Crabtree. Yeah. Mr. Crabtree. Um, and I just, you know, all of those ancillary characters, do, do you, how, what happens? How, where do those people come from? Like the main characters, I totally get it. But the, the side shows, where do they come from? Yeah, I think that Mr. Crabtree, yeah, he, he it, no matter how cold it is, he's just always standing sort of on the edges of town, wearing shorts, <laughs> refuses to just get with the program. And I think those side characters are actually, they're so important, especially in that book, which is about a community. Mr. Crabtree, I do think he's the heart of the book. He's this town eccentric. And it's the only time our main character, Annabelle, uh, sort of changes her routine of making sweaters for everybody. She changes changes what she does to accommodate him. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think it's a combination of just, he, when you're a writer, you have to observe everyone around you all the time, notice mm. things, try to capture things authentically. But also, I, I do like to wear shorts when it's cold, so it's probably <laughs> probably got a little little crab tree in me. Um, we got thinking about this show because of this new Apple TV series about Frog and Toad, uh, just a totally classic um, book series. We want to listen in to Arnold LaBelle narrating uh, one of these stories for a sec. One day in summer, Frog was not feeling well. Toad said, Frog, you are looking quite green. But I always look green, said Frog. I am a frog. Today, you look very green even for a frog, said Toad. Get into my bed and rest. Toad made Frog a cup of hot tea. 
Frog drank the tea, and then he said, Tell me a story while I am resting. That was Arnold Lobel reading uh, from one of the stories in his book series about Frog and Toad. And I have to say, you know, Michelle Martin, this... I feel like this shouldn't work as a children's book. I feel like Frog and Toad should not work as characters, right? They're the opposite of action and freneticism. They're they they're kind of the opposite of the Muppets, even. You know, they just have lived this slow, quiet life. Why do you think they work? I think they work because of relationship. Um, children's books are, you know, typically really driven by uh, plot and by compelling characters. And even though Frog and Toad are adults and most children's books are, you know, fail if they are only about adults, these are very childlike adults in what they understand and in what they do and the way that they respond to each other Um, and the closeness that they have with each other. I think that's part of the appeal for for Frog and Toad. And also because it's easy reader books that, you know, where kids are just getting those reading skills down. So they form, you know, a bond early as they start to read. I mean, do you ever worry about recommending like one of these kinds of books to certain kids who come in? Like you're like, oh, man, this might be a little slow for you. Or or do you feel like everyone loves Frog and Toad? I think everyone loves Frog and Toad. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I don't feel I think my job is really to just connect kids to those books and Mm -hmm. in the end I have confidence that they'll pick something that they love and the work is just trying many different things yeah um we've got some great comments coming in from people uh about their favorite children's book characters Susan writes the bear in corduroy He wanted so desperately to belong to someone, to go home with someone and have a place, a shelf or bed where he was cherished and a part of something. In a family of four kids, I could relate to wanting to be seen as special and chosen by someone. Todd writes, Harriet the Spy, because the characters were not very happy and she was doing something she knew was wrong, but was compelled to keep doing it. We'll come back to that theme uh, in the next segment of the show. Some of these children's characters who do things they're not supposed to. Um, we are talking about characters in children's books that made an impact on you or your children. We are joined this morning by Two Doan, children's book buyer at East Bay Booksellers Bookstore in Oakland. Michelle Martin, Beverly Cleary Professor for Children and Youth Services at the University of Washington School of Information. And children's book and picture book author Mac Barnett has written Circle Square, Triangle, Mac B Spy Kid, the Jack series. Uh, we're also going to be taking your calls after the break. What's your favorite character from a children's book? The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about memorable characters in children's books, joined by the University of Washington School of Information's Michelle H. Martin, children's book author Mac Barnett, and two Doan children's book buyer at East Bay Booksellers. We got lots of people on the phone, so let's try and get to uh, let's try and get to a couple. Priya in San Jose, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I was uh, just going going to talk a little bit about growing up 30 years ago in Toronto, mm. Canada. I actually loved Where the Wild Things Are. Um, that character, Max, was just so, um, you know, I just really uh, aligned to his thinking about just building an, an imaginary home wherever you are. Mm. But what's so interesting now, having my own kids uh, 30 years later, is there's so much diversity in children's lit that wasn't there when I was young. And so one of my favorite, favorite books is by an author named Sheetel Shep, and it is Always Anjali. And it's about how a South Asian girl um, doesn't have her name represented. She doesn't see her name in little tchotchkes or, you know, on TV or in media. And she embraces it. And Mm. she always says to be proud of your name. And my daughter just she loves that book. And so I think there's just so much offered now in children's lit that wasn't there so many years ago. Absolutely. Kind of more than in mainstream lit, really. Um, Dipriya, thank you so much uh, for, for that. Michelle Martin, can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, from the librarian's point of view, um, this shift does seem like it has it has occurred, right? I mean, there there's an enormous amount of representation. Are there things you feel like are still being left out or perspectives or ways of thinking about representation that you feel um, need, need doing? Lots of things are left out. Um, I think we are in a bit better shape, but in terms of the representation across the country and the diversity that we have, children's literature still does not reflect that. Um, I did want to mention to our last caller, Your Name is a Song is a very similar book, beautiful illustrations, but it's also about uh, children whose names uh, are hard to say or aren't represented in those, Mm. you know, bracelets and things like that. But some of the things that um, one of the things that I've identified, you know, recently in in my research is that uh, I was a I'm a Gold Award Girl Scout. My daughter's a fourth generation Girl Scout. We loved being out, love being outside. Mm. But there are very few representations still of black and brown children having immersive experiences outdoors. Um, At the time, uh, 2018, when I started doing this research, we found about four of them. Um, The that body of work is increasing, but the the number of books that are say just about African-Americans that are about the dailiness of being mm. a black child in America or wherever they live, those books are still um, the minority versus the ones that are about the civil rights movement, slavery, or uh, key historical figures. And so that really, that those parts of the, the literary uh, landscape uh, need a lot more attention and a lot more love. Yeah, yeah. Mac, I also know um, that you are a big fan of Where the Wild Things Are and that character. Talk to me about just that that character and what you find appealing about him. Yeah, I think, I think that book, uh, it's great strength. It, it's really driven by the character, it, and it takes 
the kid's side, right? Um, mm. It can be kind of shocking to return to that book as an adult because the first thing Mac do- Max, <laughs> whoops, Max does <laughs> is, uh, is, is misbehave terribly to his mother. She's, she's really upset. He gets sent to his room with no dinner. Uh, and he goes on this adventure, right? His energy, his chaotic energy carries him up to his room through the walls to this island where he meets these wild beasts that he's even wilder than, becomes their king. And then something happens, and the book leaves it kind of unsaid what it happens, what happens to him. He has an epiphany, a realization, something brings him home. Uh, but he doesn't apologize to his mom. He doesn't change who he is. It's not a corrective. It's not a simple lesson. And without having to change his essential makeup, his wildness, he still has his mother's love. The, the supper is there, and it's still warm. I think so many kids' books, we adults use them to teach something and, and often to correct a behavior. And we know these books, instead of a character, we get sort of a, a character who's just a stand-in for a problem, a braggart who learns to be humble, or a mean bunny who learns to be kind. Um, and in a 32-page picture book, the character completely sells themselves out on page 30, right? <laughs> right, uh, right. Has this epiphany, they change who they are completely, this unearned conversion. Uh, and that's a book that says, you're okay right now. You, you've, you've broken the rules, you're kind of out of bounds, but you still deserve to have a story about you. You mm. don't need to change who you are. And it's radical then and it's radical now. Well, and a bunch of, with a bunch of other picture book authors, you all wrote something quite some years ago. It was probably like 11 years ago, right? It was like the Picture Book Manifesto, and it's at thepicturebook.co. And it just kind of goes to one of the lines in this manifesto about picture books, which is the line between moral and meaning is paramount. Yeah. Right. That's kind of what you're what 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 you're saying here in a, in another way. That's right. Yeah, books with a moral, some lesson that's going to be inscribed on a kid's head, a message from the world of adults to the world of kids that tells them how to act. I'm much more interested in meaning, which is when a kid gets to bring their experience, their intelligence to a story that has ambiguity and sophistication, and and together that reader and that book form meaning uh, an understanding that's unique to that pairing yeah um we have some uh many more comments coming in actually uh holly writes in to say i always related to ramona she was messy wore overalls and did not always have her act together but the ramona i particularly related to was ramona and her father that book came out in 1977 and deals with ramona's dad losing his job we were middle-class kids facing the same situation that ramona The one who felt she needed to pitch in financially, even though she was only in second grade, was the girl I could relate to and the one who made me feel less alone as I was sure we were the only family on the block with money problems. Charlotte writes, Ferdinand the Bull. My son loved the story, Ferdinand the Bull. A bull who everyone thought should be fierce and angry, but actually was gentle and loved to smell the flowers. That was my kid to a T. I love that book also. Um, Let's go to uh, Daniel in Berkeley. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, thank you so much. I love this show. Um, I have a couple quick, quick comments. Number one, my favorite book from childhood and today, one of them, is uh, The Big Orange Splot by Daniel Pinkwater. And uh, I just love it because he just tells us each to be individually ourselves. At the last line of the book, um, it's basically, he, he basically 
paints his house these crazy colors, and then all the neighbors are saying, "Why are you doing that?" <laughs> and he says, "He says our he says my my house is me, and I am it. Um, my house is where I like to be, and it looks like all my dreams." Um, and I just I try to live my life by that. I actually drive up Spruce Street on my bike every morning, and there is a big orange spot. Mr. Plumbean house on the right side. So I'm reminded <laughs> of it all the time. Um, the other thing I really want to say is um, I stayed up late last night looking and scrolling, doom scrolling about what's happening in Florida and other parts of the country uh-huh. where people, where literally these laws are being made and books are being taken off these shelves. And I don't know what world we're living in, mm. but um, talking about the representation that we're starting to see in those places, the families and the children are, are literally being stripped of that opportunity. And it's it's terrifying. So I'd love to hear your your, your thoughts yeah. about that. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, Michelle Martin, I um, the librarians for me are kind of like the front lines of this, and and I I trust you all to take care of us. But tell me what's happening, and if you um, the the kind of work that's that's being done to make sure kids still have access to things that let them see themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot going on across the country in terms of uh, banning books and trying to restrict materials. Um, but there's also, you know, plenty of pushback. We've seen, um, you know, several library districts, including uh, Seattle Public, most recently, who have made available library cards for all of their electronic materials for kids and teens across the country who don't have access now to things that have been removed. Um, we have, you know, it, it's it is. You're right that, you know, we're used to thinking about uh, nurses and doctors and firefighters on the front lines, but now uh, librarians are on the front lines and in some cases teachers are on the front lines. And, you know, I think that these are really foundational to American democratic values. Um, And I think taking materials off of shelves and making them less available to children not only dumbs down education and dumbs down what uh, children can access, but it also limits your view of the world and of other people. And that is not something that we can afford to do right now. So, yeah. 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 Um, let's uh, go back to the phones. Let's go to uh, Megan in Richmond. Hi there. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, shout out to uh, my fellow Girl Scout Gold Award um, <laughs> on the phone. I um, The author I wanted to call in about is Tamara Pierce and actually has a direct impact on my Girl Scouting life. I took my Girl Scout camp name from one of the horses in the book and I, you know, 20 years later still have it. Um, so her first book, Alana, The First Adventure, is about a girl who pretends to be her twin brother, dresses up as a boy so she can become a knight. And as the series goes on, and, and really throughout this whole universe she's created with multiple series, um, there's really this balance that these female-centered books take of uh, vulnerability and femininity, femininity as these girls are growing up, but also being really tough and, mm. you know, fighting in wars, learning how to be a knight. So just this really beautiful way of seeing puberty and figuring out who you are. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for that, Megan. Um, Two, are there um, particular books that you like to recommend for, you know, someone were to come in and be like, I loved, you know, Alana and I love the Tamara Pierce books. Like, are there other books that you would like spin off of that one? I personally like very silly books. (laughs) (laughs) I like to read for fun. And um, that is kind of the vibe that I give off at the bookstore. (laughs) Um, 
the... If you, if you took the clown nose off, I think it might actually help <laughs> you, people take you more seriously. Um, yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. So so um, what about somebody who came in and they have that, they like, I want to... Uh, book about nights that's like silly, you know, or something like that, that inverts, um, you know, some of the traditional expectations of like a big adventure book. I guess there's um there's a new series out by Stuart Gibbs that's called Once Upon a Tim. And I think that came out pretty recently. It's about a very average night <laughs> who is really just proud of being who he is and kind of stumbles into these adventures at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's humorous and it's kind of the, I guess, the emotions that sometimes kids gravitate towards when they're mm-hmm. looking for a book. Because like us, um, they're looking for an escape to and something that they can just enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Mac, I want to talk to you a little bit about what it's like to kind of create some of these characters. And I think I want to just play, and granted, you know, this is not a book. This is the animated series version here. But I want to play this cut we have from Shape Island, which is based on your books about triangle, circle, and square. And then we'll we'll talk about these characters. Hey, what if we made a pillow fort? Then we could sleep in there all night. Yeah, that sounds cool. No, Circle, we don't have time for a pillow fort. We've already had to lose too many of my planned activities, and there's no way we're missing out on making small decorative baskets before bedtime. Ah, come on, stop worrying about it. We can just do the things we missed next time. Next time? I've been planning this for months, and you didn't hear me earlier. I'm getting the box of natural fibers. You two, stay put! (laughs) (laughs) So that show is really funny. Um... So the premise of the show, will you, what is the premise of the show? Sure. It's about, it's about three neighbors, uh, again, kind of childlike adults, but they're actually uh, geometric solids, like a cube, a pyramid, and a sphere uh, named square, triangle, and circle. Uh, they live together, and they, just, they, they bounce off each other. They have three very different personalities. They're three really strong characters, and... I think one of our writers actually uh, described the dynamic really well. She's a mom and talked about how three is the worst number for a play date uh, <laughs> because the alliances are always shifting. Two kids are always teaming up against one. And then all of a sudden that one kid says something and boom, now it's two against a different one. And that's that's how our show works, too. Uh, mm-hmm. We like to put these three different shapes in uh, in situations and see what happens. Well, so... When we think about creating, you know, Square wants everything to kind of go the way that Square planned it, you know, and Triangle is sort of like, ah, it's all fine, you know, and Circle is this almost kind of angel character at times, though she has, you know, uh, these feelings uh, as well. I mean, when you're creating a character like this, is it an advantage that they all they are is a shape? You know, like, could it, could they have been, could square have been a triangle or triangle have been a square? You know, Yeah, I think they could have. That was actually really important to us from the very start when we were making these books. We said that we wanted these stories to always be driven by these characters' authentic personalities, not by plots, but by their desires, their fears. Um, and, and when designing them, uh, I think a lot of it came initially frustration that John Clausen, the illustrator, had with classic character design where let's say you're going to make a villain 
you put a big cape on the villain and maybe you would give him a uh, a mustache, and, and he'd be using a lot of hair product. <laughs> uh, and those cues, uh, John was like, I, I don't want any of that. I, I just want to make this minimal. Shapes John Clausen, the illustrator. John Clausen, the illustrator, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, I want shapes with eyes, because we don't have any preconceived notions about them. We have to learn who these characters are by watching what they do and listening to what they say. Uh, and there's a deeper level of attention and a deeper level of understanding when we get rid of those shortcuts that that's what it's like to be a person in the world too right that's actually how we learn about each other and there, yeah. there aren't a lot of well th- there are a lot of people with capes and and, and too much hair product walking <laughs> around but they're not villains yeah not everyone with a mustache even a quivering one <laughs> that's is, right uh, is a bad guy that's right yeah that's right. Um, we have a bunch of uh, comments run, coming in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through uh, some here. Judd writes, from way back when, I remember The Little Engine That Could. I think my mom read it to me when I was three or four. I'm 81, and I'm pretty sure that later in life, I added my own take on the book's lesson, restating that I, as the little engine that could, could do whatever I wanted to do. In my case, becoming a black bohemian artist, pulling my career up that steep hill. Chris writes... Donald J. Sobel's Sobel's? Uh, Encyclopedia Brown series, of course, about a 10-year-old small-town detective sparked my love for adventure. It also taught me that even a young child could be confident in their critical thinking and gave me a curious bent even when life presented me with challenges. I still carry this perspective now as I face more adult life challenges. Another listener writes, As a latchkey kid, characters and books were my friends. Fellow kids were hard to figure out, but characters and books laid out all their inner thoughts. You knew what Meg in A Wrinkle in Time was thinking. Judy Bloom laid out what her characters like Margaret were feeling. Those characters became friends to me because I knew more about them than the real people around me. Um, Alice writes in to say... Max and Ruby are a brother and sister rabbit pair. Ruby is the buttoned-up older sister who is large and in charge. Max is her brother who doesn't use words. My daughter and son loved these books because they saw themselves and each other in the characters. That sibling relationship was very familiar to them, and they would pretend to be Max and Ruby all the time. One last one. Uh, Harry writes, When I was a kid, I loved the boy in The Day the Babies Crawled Away. The boy is unnamed, but he is the only one who sees the babies crawling away while the adults are distracted at a party. Our boy follows them on their adventure and returns them home safely. He is celebrated as a hero. We are talking about your favorite characters in children's books. We have Michelle H. Martin, Beverly Cleary, Professor of Children and Youth Services in the MLIS program chair at the University of Washington School of Information. We have Mac Barnett, author of many children's books, including Circle Square and Triangle, which were made into a new animated series, Shape Island, on Apple TV. And we have Tu Doan, who is the children's book buyer, lover of silly books at East Bay Booksellers, a bookstore located in Oakland. We'd love to hear from you, uh, as we have been. What characters from children's books have resonated with you? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, or you can email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about your favorite characters in children's books, ones that made an impact on you or your children. Joined by Tudon, children's book buyer at East Bay Booksellers, Mac Barnett, author of many wonderful children's books, and Michelle H. Martin of the University of Washington School of Information. I want to uh, get back to the phone just because people have a bunch of fun things to say. Bill in Martinez, welcome. Hey, um, you know, there's a lot of really great uh, characters and books out there, but you know sometimes uh, lowbrow character like Captain Underpants can be a good entryway. Our son was a completely reluctant reader, and uh, Captain Underpants introduced him to reading. He, he just he just we couldn't get him to read before that, and, and after that he really became a voracious reader. Mm. You know, fair, you know, fairly large books for a kid his age. I just think that you have to find what the kid wants. Yeah, for sure. Hey, thank you, Bill. I mean, Michelle Martin, Captain Underpants. Um, can you describe the idea of Captain Underpants? Well, you know, you can tell from the title that there's potty humor all over <laughs> it. And Dave Pilkey has a way of knowing exactly what kids think uh, will be funny. Um, I could not keep Dogman, also a Dave Pilkey <laughs> oh my God, Dogman, yeah. on the shelves at Camp Readorama last summer. The kids were like arguing over who was going to get the last, you know, uh, book. And so I think that, you know, the last caller is right. You need to find the books that the kids like, whether that's humor, whether that's graphic novels, whether that's wordless picture books, wherever they are and whatever they want to read, that's what you find for them and find lots of it so that they can, you know, grow into into other things. But, yeah. So Captain Underpants, you know, um, you know, those books that that really rely on potty humor a lot are are pretty fun for a lot of kids. Mac, do you feel like I know that you've done, you know, improv comedy and other other things in your time, sketch comedy kind of stuff. Do you find the sort of potty humor of those books to be sort of like, are you like, oh, that's cheap? Or are you like, no, that's actually good. That's funny. Yeah, I think it's all good. It's all inbounds. I think that that uh, kids literature, like literature for adults, needs to have all kinds of humor, all kinds of storytelling, uh, all genres. It should be wide, wide open um, for exactly that reason. Uh, kids aren't monoliths. Uh, they all have different tastes. And we need to have books that, that cater to all kids' tastes and experiences. Yeah. Let's uh, go to Autumn in Port Orchard, Washington. Welcome. Thank you. I love the show. Listen almost every day. Oh. Um, I'm in Washington now, but I grew up in the Crocker Amazon district in San Francisco. My mom used to drop me and my younger sister off at the Excelsior library for hours where, you know, we spent lots of time sitting on the floor reading. And my, what popped to mind when you asked favorite character was 
Mr. Auto and his automobile. Auto is O-T-T-O. I doubt it's even in print anymore, but my first job was at the California State Automobile Association. (laughs) (laughs) And since then, I've worked at American Airlines and also at Chevron, which is involved with transportation, transportation related projects there. So, like, this really shaped your life, Autumn. Yeah. Yeah. No, this really yeah, shaped your life, like to, to get it, it interested in those things. Did you also like Richard Scarry books too? Uh, name a few titles. Oh, they're just the kind of books that have like all you know. They'll have a big spread, and there'll be all these different little things. I was just wondering because there's all these amazing no, I spreads think, books. No, no, I, that might even have been after my time. But mm-hmm. Little Engine that could mm-hmm. rang a bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, uh, you know, both the moral of that and notice more transportation. <laughs> <laughs> I think it represented freedom, actually, is where, I, you know, the underlying thing was that Mr. Otto could go anywhere in his car. And here I was, you know, stuck on the floor of the library. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, thank you so much for that call, Autumn. And thanks, uh, thanks for listening up there. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, well, let's go, let's go uh, straight to uh, another call. Let's go to uh, Linda in Santa Rosa. Welcome. Hi, how are you guys? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. Well, I know someone uh, brought up Corduroy earlier, Don mm-hmm. Freeman's book. Um, but for me, it was the character Lisa, the little girl who fell in love with Corduroy on the shelf. And the fact that she loved him because he was imperfect mm-hmm. and needed her was, I think, just, just it still almost brings tears to my eyes thinking of it. And a couple years ago, I was, I'm a 50-something-year-old woman now. I was in a store, and it was after Christmas, and there was a polar bear that had clearly not made it through Black Friday and was missing a foot and really needed a good cleanup. And I walked past it, and then a few minutes later, I walked back, and I just, I thought of Lisa, and I I had to buy it and take it home and fix her up. So (laughs) I just think that um, that's the kind of story that, it really can help shape your heart, you know, can help, help open your heart, I guess. Absolutely. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Linda. I mean, Mac, when you hear all these people, you know, like Judd, the artist earlier talking about his mom reading him this story at three or four, and here he is at 81, still thinking about it, or, you know, Linda talking about Lisa and Corduroy, are you like, oh man, that's a lot of responsibility. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it feels so good, actually. I've been so moved listening to people describe this. The books we read as kids, they're so important to us and and they do stick with us the, the rest of our lives. I've been writing for about uh, 20 years, and uh, I, I, I'm only getting to the point where, where like, I, I do have adults come up to me uh, and say, like, I read your book when I was a kid. That is kind of horrifying, uh, <laughs> but also so meaningful to be one of those books that kids take with them when they move off to college that they still carry around with them, that they still say, like, if you wrote a sequel to that, I, w- I would get it now. It, it's, it's so... I, there's nothing like that. It, it, uh, there's some of the things that we hold closest to us and, and take out of our childhood. Yeah. To are there um, books that you love to recommend about, say, um, you know, uh, well, I'll read you this one. Rebecca tweets, one of my favorite books I read to my daughter is The Gruffalo. Not sure how well known it is, but it's all about this mouse who outsmarts all these predator animals in the forest who want to eat him by making up this monster called the Gruffalo. But then the Gruffalo appears and the mouse manages to outsmart him as well. My question is, how do you match the book to the kid? Like a kid walks into the store and you're like, 
how do I know what, how do I know if this is a Gruffalo kid or if they're going to be scared by the Gruffalo and they instead need, you know, something softer? I think when I'm selling books to kids, I like to ask them, I like to ask them how they want to feel. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) And um, what was the last favorite book that they read? Because that really says a lot. And what they liked about the book. We have a little conversation, you know, and they share so much. And it really opens my eyes to what they see and what they're reading into these books. My God, what do they say when you ask them, how do you want to feel after you read this book? A lot of them just want to laugh. And a lot of them resonate with certain characters or different types of animals like unicorns or Mm. (laughs) dragons. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, it's another unicorn kid. I know just where to go with this one. (laughs) Yeah. So it's nice. It's kind of like a little therapy session. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, Michelle, in your scholar life, how do you think about I feel like the 1970s are were this had this had these amazing picture books and even even you know before Margaret Weiss Brown there's these amazing children's books that also feel like kind of high art at the same time do you feel like that tradition has has been able to kind of maintain its its purchase or do you feel like it's more difficult for books like that to be published now though obviously great ones continue to to be published all the time No, I think we are in an amazing time for children's picture book and children's picture book art. Um, And we have some like, you know, second and third generation family of illustrators and and authors um, like Jerry Pinckney's, you know, Mm -hmm. there's like eight Pinckney's involved in publishing children's books. (laughs) Um, There, yes, this is amazing, not only because of that sort of, you know, tradition of being handed down this craft, But also because, you know, I think early in children's literature, people kind of came at illustration sideways. It was sort of a a less than. There are a lot of artists now who are coming intentionally through school to be children's illustrators, which I think is really exciting. And the quality of the art, um, you know, everything from one of my favorite picture books that was that was published, I think, probably in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, has batik on silk illustrations, 17 kings and 42 elephants. Mm-hmm. And you get people like James Ransom who use uh, oil paint. I mean, that's a lot, it's a lot of work. And oil is kind of unforgiving because it takes you know a long time to dry and all, mm-hmm. all of that. So no, I think the art in children's picture books, I think it's a really exciting time to be, to be reading children's literature. Yeah. Um, two uh, great comments. Michelle writes, I love that your guest mentioned the stories that Julian tell stories Julian tells. I've yet to meet anyone else who remembers the book. But when I was a little girl, I stumbled on it on one of those sweltering summer afternoons when we'd hole up in the library to get out of the heat. And I think I devoured it in one sitting. I still remember his grandmother describing lemon ice as tasting like a raft of lemons, which, like Julian, I also didn't quite understand but found totally captivating and wanting to go out and build a house-shaped trellis to grow sweet peas and other vegetables immediately after reading the book. Sarah writes, Love the show. In revisiting favorite children's books before sharing them with my grandchildren, I discovered the sexism and racism that we took for granted 50 years ago, but is glaringly offensive now. Think of Peter Pan. Even Otis Spofford represents assumptions we do not wish to endorse now. What recommendations does the panel have for sharing these classics with children now or any book that conveys these kind of outmoded values and yet has literary and imaginative 
value. Tui, why don't we start with you? I think we get a lot of that, uh, at least at my bookstore. There are a lot of grandparents that want to share these books or parents sharing books that they read when they were kids. And there are a few things that might be wrong with some of these books. But I think it's kind of a responsibility to have a to discuss some of the themes and that are happening in the books. I I don't think that we should ignore them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michelle, how do you how do you prepare people for that? Yeah, and this is something that I deal with a lot with uh, Master of Library and Information Science students at UW because a lot right. of times you want to expose, you know, kids to what you had. Um, and I'm going to say there's nothing wrong with that, but there, as two says, it has to be accompanied by conversations. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you love the story of Little Black Sambo, well, that's all in good, but that book has done a lot of damage to a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read that book, then it needs to be accompanied by conversations about um, the images that they're not, uh, they're not that um, they don't honor black children. Mm. Um, you know, and I think it's a great imaginative story that also refuses to die because Mm. there are a lot of contemporary versions like pancakes for supper that retell that story. Um, and they're, you know, so I think that you can bring those books forward, but also do your homework and don't let those be the only things that you expose children to. And I also focus a lot in my classes on you know, even if you live in an all white area or an all black area, those aren't the only books that you need to expose kids to. People mm-hmm. are like, oh, well, I don't have any Asian kids. Well, books can take kids places where they might never go. So, mm-hmm. you know, choose diversely to expose kids and open their minds to, to different ways of being. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's squeeze in another call here. Uh, Lauren in Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, kind of love this conversation. One of my favorite books as a child was by John Stone, The Monster at the End of This Book, starring lovable furry old Grover. Um, adored it. And when my child was born a few years ago, he's eight now, I read it to him constantly. And within two weeks or so of being able to walk, I looked down and he was toddling over, carrying the book for me to read to him, which was <laughs> one of the best moments, really, of my entire life. Um one of the things about that book that's so great, and I later read this amazing Lit Hub essay about it, is that it puts all this power in the hands of children. They get to decide what happens to Grover. And it's such an amazing realization of, I get to control this. I get to have power when, you know, when you're two or three, you don't generally feel like you have any. So I thought that's a very insightful thing about the book and just wanted to shout it out. Thank you. Mm. I love it. I mean, Mac, um, you have a just two-year-old, which is amazing. You've been writing children's books for like 10 times as long as you've had a child. Um, Talk to me about that experience. I I mean, I can't even imagine what it is to to be bringing these beloved objects that you've both created, that your friends have created, that have, you know, composed your whole life to your kid and having them be like, yeah, I actually don't like that one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. It's, it, it, it is an anxiety that, that all my friends who make these things and have kids share that we, you know, we're very nervous about introducing our own work. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Uh, Triangle was one of the first books that, that my son loved. That felt great. Huge victory. Uh, <laughs> But it is. I think that that uh, 
you just decide. We're going to follow his taste. And, and you, of course, hope that uh, your kids will like your work. But but we follow him. I, I just want to say, too, John Stone, who, who wrote that book, was also uh, the, the director and head writer of Sesame Street for decades. And I think one of the most important writers in, in the history of, of literature for children, I consider those, those early seasons of Sesame Street great children's art, uh, really undersung, and, and that book is brilliant. Uh, my son, Rafe, we, we watch uh, only Sesame Street from the Johnstone era. <laughs> and, of course, Shape Island. We watch Shape Island, too. We gotta, again, we got to show him what I made. Yes, but, that's uh, right. Yeah. What, what is different about those Sesame Street seasons from the later ones? Well, I think what, what those early seasons get so well, again, I mean, all the learning, the pedagogy, this is a show that is trying to teach kids to, to read, to count, and, and to understand the world. They still base it in character and flawed characters. Every character on that show gets angry, misunderstands one another, uh, lets their their id go wild, uh, and sometimes they don't apologize or come to an understanding. It's a picture of a community that's beautiful, but partly beautiful because it acknowledges that it can be hard to live next to other people. And it, it never goes for, for just bromides or, or, or simple morals. Ah, oh, yeah, that's such a good point. I, I also love Sesame Street. Um, Jessica writes in to say, I just read The Paper Kingdom by Helena Kuri to my son's class at school yesterday for AIPI Heritage Month. It's about a child who has to go to work with his parents who are night janitors because his babysitter couldn't watch him. This newer picture book really hits home as my own Korean immigrant parents worked as night janitors of office buildings around L.A., similarly to the protagonist and the author. While the central themes include unseen labor, parent expectations, and dreams for their children, the fact that the characters are of Asian heritage makes it extra special for me. It's a way for me to share a bit about my childhood and my parents' life with my son, who didn't get a chance to meet my father, who died before he was born. One last uh, recommend. Actually, you know what? We got to do credits today. I just want to thank um, all three of you for coming. Michelle Martin, Beverly Cleary, Professor for Children and Youth Services and the MLIS Program Chair at the University of Washington School of Information. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is great. To Doan, Children's Book Buyer at East Bay Booksellers Bookstore located in Oakland on College. Thank you so much for joining us, too. Thanks so much. I'll see you at the bookstore soon. And Mac Barnett, author of the children's book, Circle Square and Triangle, among many others, I recommend extra especially extra yarn. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Mac. This was fun. Um, This show has been so fun. Thank you for, I've been kind of sick this week. Thank you, everyone who's uh, born with me through it. This Hour Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, Jennifer Ng, and Lakshmi Sarah. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Christopher Beal, and Brendan Willard. Our our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven-Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you to all of, your, all of our callers and all of our commenters today. That's so fun. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Scott Schaefer. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.